0: We're getting all fancy around these parts with this mic, so we'll see how it goes this morning. But apparently I like to turn my head a lot and people miss me if you're sitting on the side, so we're hoping this'll help. Um, if you're on the fringes we do care about you. Don't let don't let don't let anybody tell you different. Um, This morning we're going to be continuing our our series on David, um, After God's Own Heart, Lessons from the Life of David. In the past, we've talked about David being a man after God's own heart, and that's kind of been the foundation of this series. David is probably the most well-known Old Testament character. He is one of the ones in the Bible outside of Jesus who probably has the most commentary on his life. Um, David gives us this window, though, into not only how good God is, but sometimes how human we are. So we've talked about God choosing David because of his heart. We've talked about God preparing David for battle to slay giants like Goliath. We talked about friendship and covenant with Jonathan. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about God is always worthy of worship as we looked at David in the ark. This morning, we're going to change uh, scenes a little bit, and we're going to talk about David and Bathsheba. We're going to talk about sin and how sin is intentionally taking steps in the wrong way. Please pray with me. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much that you are indeed merciful. We thank you so much that you are indeed faithful. We thank you that you're true and that you're good. Lord, we pray now that as we revisit this story, that we always give our hearts to you, that we always give our lives to you, that we're always willing to fall on our knees and cry out to you. Lord, forgive us of our great sin. Lord, help us to always call on you. And Lord, help us to always know that you, are God who loves us, has the last word. In your holy and precious name, amen? Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel 11. Um, We'll also have it up front here. I'm going to be reading the entire chapter because you need to for this story. Um, 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was doing, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all the master servants and did not go down to his own house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And David said to him, Stay here one more day. Tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem, and that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew their strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Don't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubasheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he'd die in Febez? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then just say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This is a, a very, very hard passage because it's a David that we're not used to. It's a David we'd like to forget. This is a very hard passage because this David is very, very different than the man after God's own heart that we've loved all these years. This is a very hard passage because it represents a turning point in David's life. This is the point of no return. This is the point where these actions will forever dictate what happens for the rest of his days. Eugene Peterson, pastor and writer, once wrote that David and Bathsheba is really the turning point. Most of us who grew up in church, we know about David and Goliath. That's the high point. But if there is indeed a low point in David's life, it's David and Bathsheba. One of the reasons David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba stick out is how different they are. You know, with David and Goliath, we want to be like David. With David and Bathsheba, we realize David's like us. With David and and Goliath, we look at Goliath and, and he's tall and he's loud and he's ugly and he's a tyrant and he's taunting God. With Bathsheba, she's low, she's meek, she's humble. The Bible notes she's very beautiful, which to me tells me she's very beautiful. But more than that, though, at the end of each of these stories, we really get to define David's heart. The other thing that's fascinating about this David that we're not used to meeting is this story happens in his later days. David, David is about 50 years old. He's 50-ish. David is now established as the king of the realm. He's established as the greatest warrior. He's established as the godly servant, the priest for all the people. But this also serves, though, as a reminder to us that sin is not restricted to age that the flesh does not stop being weak simply because we get old and on the outside look more godly. David is 50-something, and he still succumbs to his flesh. The story also, though, reminds us that we need to sometimes rethink of what we think about sin. Most of us can tell you sin is falling short of God's mark. Sin is missing the mark altogether. We might even tell you sin is disobeying God, what God asks us to do, not doing it. But I think what this story tells us is that sin is also intentional steps in the wrong direction. And as we go through this story, I think it's important for us to hold on to these two things as well. David's public life was very good. He was loved by the people. He was accepted by the people. He was, the people not only sung songs about him, but they just loved him and let him do basically whatever he wanted. David, though, as exalted as he was, as the defender of Israel as he was, as this holder of this covenant, this promise forever from God, he also did some things that got excused, some things that we must not forget going to this story. The first thing that David did is David had multiple wives. This is in direct contrast to the Mosaic covenant. It's in direct contrast to the rules that God gave in Deuteronomy 17 when he says, as king, choose someone who kind of looks like David for the first half. Choose someone who's about me. Choose someone who loves me. Choose someone who's going to represent me to you. Choose someone who's going to connect you to me. But also choose someone who's not about multiplying his wealth and multiplying his wives. David did very good on multiplying his wealth because up until this point, all that David has is what God's given him. But what David doesn't do, and because he was so great on the outside, was he kept taking wives. I think this gives us a little bit of an insight into this Bathsheba story because we need to realize that David loved women, yes, but David loved himself and lust even more. And because he was so great on the outside... No one questioned him, which brings us to our second part. David lives with no accountability. May we never reach that place where there's no one in our lives to tell us, hey, you're going the wrong way. So you have David, the most powerful person in the country, the greatest Israelite to all the Israelite people, and he has no accountability. Perhaps this helps us on our way to understanding David and Bathsheba just a little bit more. The challenge for us in this story, though, is to not just look at David and how bad he was, but to simply ask this question What does this story teach about me? What does this story teach about me? C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Screwtape Letters, is, is writing as, you know, Screwtape, this older, this older demon who is sent to, and he's, he's training and mentoring a younger demon, Wormwood. And this line always said for me, when he talks about sin, he talks about this intentional steps in the wrong direction. And basically, Screwtape tells to, to Wormwood, he says, you know what you need is, you need them to just take small steps away from the light. The idea here is that when we fall into sin, if it's gradual, we won't notice. If it's unobstructed, we won't notice. If it's without accountability, we definitely won't notice. So when we look through this story now, the second time going through our text, I want you and I asked you if you read the blog this week to circle in your Bible to note all these different times that David stepped away from the light. All these different times David took steps in the wrong direction. The very first one is in the very first passage, very first verse. The, 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 the author of the passage says, In the spring at the times when, things, when kings go to war. This is fascinating because in the ancient Near East, whenever the rainy season ended, that was time to fight. You know, for me, it's like that's time to plant crops. You know, that's time to maybe eat some good food. That's time to maybe hang out with family and friends because it's not raining outside. Do stuff outside. But in the ancient Near East, they went to war. But more than that, you remember when the Israelites came before Samuel and they came to God and they said they wanted a king, what was one of the reasons they said they wanted a king? We needed someone to physically lead us out into battle. You see, what happens here is not just what's true in the ancient Near East. It's not just what's true in Israel. David knows this. Every spring, your job as king was to go to war. And what's fascinating, one commenter said is that this is done in a different culture and context, yes. But these kings were supposed to be defending their people. Apparently over the the rainy season, everyone would get agitated being inside so long, and they would fight in the spring. So your job is to defend your people. But what's stark about David is that instead of defending his people, instead of going to war to fight for his people, he stays at home and abuses some loyal subjects. The second thing that happens in the story, maybe the second big step, is that David takes a long nap. You know, my grandma used to always say, idle hands is the devil's workshop. And it took me up until teenage years to realize what she's talking about. Because usually when she said that, it means she had a list of chores that you should have been doing and should have already been done. Yeah. So when she said, idle hands is the devil's workshop, I used to always say, like, I don't know what that means, but I know I got to get going. The thing that's fascinating here, though, is that, you know, in the ancient Near East, unlike our culture, they believed in something, you know, some, some Spanish cultures, for example, called a siesta, right? It wasn't that wild that in that culture, after, you know, your big noontime meal, you would take a nap. And one commenter who was really, real interesting because well, I, I try to, to be intentional about reading different commenters. So I try to be intentional about reading women and different people of color as well. And, and it, you just get different perspectives, right? And the one commenter who's a woman, and I was just like, she's probably a grandmother or she's on the way. But one of the things she pointed out that I had missed for years is that David doesn't just wake up in the middle of the night because he can't sleep is that David most likely should have been to war, and he's not at war, and he's being slothful. So more than likely, David is just doing whatever he wants at the palace, eats his meal, and then sleeps all day, and then wakes up at night. And that's very, very interesting to me, because when he wakes up at night, he decides to go for a walk. You know, he goes, decides to go for a stroll. Now, what's interesting here is that David notices the woman is very beautiful. Sometimes we'll read this passage, we're like, oh, he saw her, and it's like, ah, no. This is an intentional look. This is not a glance. This is not something that happened by accident. David is gawking at Bathsheba. This reminds us, though, that, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Temptation, says that when we're tempted, one of the things that's fascinating about being tempted is that when we're really tempted, only the desire that we have is real. These things that have been smoldering underneath or these things that we've been trying to kick through our back of our mind, that's the only thing that becomes real and we forget God. James, the brother of Jesus, says this this way, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. I really think James is subtweeting David and Bathsheba. And if you don't know what that means, it just means that David. this is commentary on David and Bathsheba. Because I think if you really want to understand this passage, look at the last three lines that James says. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. David gawks, David stares, David doesn't just glance, he checks her out. And he looks for a long time to realize that she's beautiful. I think the Old Testament names several people who are beautiful. I think um, Rebecca, Vashti, Esther, but Bathsheba is the only one who's noted as very beautiful. So take that for whatever you want. The next part of this story, though, is kind of interesting to me because David then asked about Bathsheba. So he inquires, and a servant comes to him, and, and the, the NIV did a lot of good work in, in, in moving from, you know, the old version to the most recent version a couple of years ago. But one of the mistakes I think the NIV made is they ignore a little thing that happens in Hebrew, and they read this statement as an affirmative statement. When David asked about who is Bathsheba, the servant said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. However, in the Hebrew, it reads kind of like this. Um, isn't that Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You see the difference? You see, the first part is, if it's just informational, I'm just telling you who she is. The second part, if it's posed as a question, it's a little different, it's like, you know who that is. That's Uriah's wife, that's Eliam's daughter, See the difference? There's a switch there. So the NIV is very faithful on many, many things. But in making that an affirmative statement, we read it as informational. Oh, yeah, 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 that's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and and, and Eliam's daughter. However, in the Hebrew, it really reads like, "Um, David, isn't that Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and, and, and Eliam's daughter? Now, who are these people? Well, Uriah and Eliam were actually one of David's mighty men, two of David's mighty men. There's a list in the Old Testament, the David story, of all these great warriors who did all these great things, right? So Uriah and Eliam are two of the mightiest men. And more than that, Bathsheba's father, I always mess up this name, his name was Ahithophel. We'll just say that with confidence. That's how you say Old Testament names with confidence. Ahithophel was a, was a ba- Bathsheba's dad uh, or Bathsheba's grandpa. Sorry, her dad was Eliam, who was a loyal soldier, and Uriah was a loyal soldier. Ahithophel was her grandfather, who was one of David's closest and wisest counselors. So that changes it a little bit, right? So not only is David should have been a war, and he's not a war, should have been doing something during the day, but he's sleeping all day, should have not been on the roof. Another thing that's important to realize about the ancient Near East too is kings like to live on hills, and when you live on a hill, the people closest to you are going to be the people closest to you because you get to pick who your neighbors are. So David not only knows who Bathsheba is, he knows her entire family. Her father... And her husband are the two loyal soldiers who arguably have been with him since he's been on a run from Saul. So they could have been with him a combined 30, 40 years from the very beginning. So you see why it's important to make that little shift and why the Hebrew helps us? Because if we just said, oh, yeah, she's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife and, and, and Eliam's daughter. No, no, the servant is saying, um, David, I know no one checks you and everything, but that, that's Uriah's wife and Eliam's daughter. So David knows who Bathsheba is, but again, sin and our evil desires when they're enticed, they they, they not only forget about who God is, but they birth the sin, and when it's full grown, it gives to death. The next thing David does is he summons Bathsheba, and he lays with her, and what's fascinating to me in this passage is David is a great, you know, we're told David is a very good-looking person, you know. I'm guessing at 50-something, he was still dashing, you know, but the other thing that's fascinating about David is he's a songwriter, he's an artist, he's a musician, he's a warrior, he has, he's the most powerful man in the country. He has all these things going for him, but there's nothing in this passage so far that gives any hint that there's affection here. There's nothing in this passage so far that gives any hint there's even conversation here. All we know is that he summons for her and he lays with her. David is standing in his power. David is using his power to take advantage of someone who's not anywhere close to his power. David lays with her. David objectifies her. There's no affection. There's no word. In fact, Bathsheba's first word in this entire passage is what? Hey, David, I'm pregnant. And the author makes this, you know, as a kid, I read this. And I think I read this maybe when I was too young. I remember asking my Sunday school teacher, now, what does it mean that she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, you know? And you don't need a commentary. I'll give you, if you don't know, ask somebody else. They'll figure it out for you, right? But the author puts that in there. Like, as a kid, I'm like, what does that even mean? But the author puts that in there directly to let us know that before David forced himself upon Bathsheba, she was not pregnant that the pregnancy happens after this action. Like, there's so many details in that he's very, very intentional to point out that, like, Bathsheba was minding her own business, it was that time of the month, and David didn't care, and David took advantage of her, and she got pregnant after this situation, after he forced himself upon her. So next, David summons Uriah. And what's fascinating to me is in the Hebrew, the word that used, you know, when we read in uh, the NIV here, again, it says, you know, David sent to Uriah. Uriah came to him. He asked how the soldier was, how the war was going, how Joab was. The word that's actually used makes you realize how cynical and blinded David really is. David doesn't just say, hey, how's everyone doing? David asked for the shalom of Joab, for the shalom of the people, for the shalom of the welfare of the whole army. Why is that cynical? Shalom is this idea of being right with God and right with men. So David isn't just checking in. He's just like, how are they doing in their relationship to one another? How are they doing in serving God? How are they doing in advancing God's kingdom? David is being cynical by using this word that's supposed to be, I am right with God and I am right with my brother. He's using that same word to check in on them when he's not right with God. When the man he's talking to and getting a report from is the man he's breaking shalom with, is the man he's trying to get to cover for his own sins. And then David uses something that we miss in the English here, and he says, Go wash your feet, which in the Hebrew apparently is a euphemism that says, Go sleep with your wife. David is not messing around. David is still in power. David is trying to cover his sin. And cover-ups are always ugly. So David asks about the shalom of everybody. And he says, I know the battlefield's hard. I know you've been away from your wife. Go home and wash your feet. Go home and spend time with your wife. You deserve it. But what happens here is Uriah's loyalty, David is not ready for Instead of going home, Uriah stays in the palace. And I always thought this was interesting. Not only does he not go home, but he stays in the palace. And who does he sleep among? He sleeps among the other servants. Imagine walking on eggshells. We've all walked on eggshells before. But imagine being a servant in David's palace. You know what he's done, and you have to make the bed for Uriah and pretend like nothing's going on cover-ups not only are messy, they always hurt the people around us and put them in situations that they don't deserve to be in. David puts even his servants at risk because, you know, if they were to step out and tell Uriah what's really going on, it's not that wild to think that David might have them killed because he's trying to cover up everything. So David then comes back to Uriah, and Uriah makes this vow, and it's really one of the most beautiful vows. You know, Uriah says, I am not going to go back and spend time with my wife, not with the ark, the thing that represents God out in the battlefield, not with my brothers fighting for you, David, not with Joab, my commander, leading these armies. I am not going to do it because I am here to serve you. And this is a dark contrast Because Uriah is called a Hittite. Now, there's some people who believe that, you know, Uriah was not only an outsider, but he was a convert to Judaism. Another beautiful reminder that God's kingdom is always a multicultural kingdom. It's never about hereditary. It's always about belief. So there's people who say Uriah the Hittite not only converted to Judaism, he had to convert to Judaism to be eligible to bury Bathsheba. Right. And there's a, there's a, remember, we talked about covenant. One of the signs of covenant was you would change your name. So Uriah might not have even been his birth name. Uriah was a Jewish name that he took. You know what his Jewish name means? God is light. That's his name. He converted to Judaism. He married Bathsheba. He's been loyal to David for probably at least a decade, maybe more. And he now has to remind the man after God's own heart that I am here to serve God. I'm here to serve with my brothers and sisters for your doing. It's a stark contrast because David is the ultimate insider, isn't he? He's the one who's handpicked by God. He's the priest. He's the king. Yet Uriah has to remind him that I'm here to do your work. There's other commenters who also say that, you know, another possibility, and I think they were trying to absolve David a little bit, but I'm like, ooh, that just makes it worse to me. So Uriah's either a convert or there's also a possibility that Uriah when he wasn't fighting in David's wars, was an active missionary to the Hittites. You know, that he spent so many times with the Hittite people that they're just like, yeah, that's the guy who brings the Hittites to the temple. That's why he's Uriah the Hittite. So your two options is Uriah is either a man who converted to Judaism and is following the God of David, or Uriah was always an Israelite and he's serving the God of David by going to an unreached people group who's among them and bringing them into the temple. This is who Uriah was. And David looks past all of that. Now, the reason I think that's important is we can't just hold on to the fact that Uriah is a loyal soldier. We have to hold on to that Uriah is a loyal servant of Yahweh. He's a loyal servant of God, and this is his reward. So David then again comes back to Uriah and says, well, I'm going to try a different plan. Why don't you stay a while, Uriah? Why don't you come again to dinner and, 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 you know, let's just hang out? And it, the, the passage, again, the author is very, very um, clear here. He says, you know, David gets him drunk. Now, as a kid, and this is where my cynicism really takes off. As a kid, you know, I would said, you know what? Uriah drunk and he ain't even get into trouble. So I'm tired of all these people telling me they got drunk and that's why they're getting into trouble. This is what I did as a kid. I'm sorry. God needed to forgive me, but I was a judgmental 13-year-old, you know? When my friends started drinking, it was their excuse to get into trouble. And I was just like, well, he didn't. What's your excuse? But the point here, again, is David is showing his power. He invites this man into his home, and he's sitting there just feeding him wine and feeding him food and getting him drunk and hoping that Uriah gets so drunk that he can either forget what he did the night before, or David can be like, oh, yeah, yeah, you went home and you slept with your wife. But again, Uriah says no. He doesn't go home. He sleeps with the servants, and David finally gets his great plan. And this is probably the darkest part of the story, David sends Uriah back to the war, and he sends him with his own death warrant. And you see the loyalty of Uriah, and, and so part of it you think is like, well, maybe it has the king's seal, you know, so he can't, like, open it because Joab will know he opened it. Or maybe he snuck a look, but he can't read, so he doesn't know what's happening. I'm not sure if either of those are true. But what I know it's true is that Uriah is so faithful that he goes back into battle with his own death warrant and gives it to Joab. Now, what's fascinating about Joab is one commenter, I love this, is like, you know who Joab is? Joab is the hatchet man. He's the hatchet man every, you know, tyrant needs. Because especially if you want to look good on the outside, you need the political, the smooth operator who does all the dirty stuff in the background. That's who Joab is. But this passage also shows Joab as something else. He's very smart. You know, he undoubtedly knows Uriah. And if he knows Uriah, there's a good chance he knows uh, Eliam. And if he knows Eliam, there's a good chance, you know, he knows Bathsheba. And U- Uriah, I mean, Joab, is also a good chance that he knows her grandfather, Hithubal. So he knows what's going on. He knows this is a very beautiful woman. He probably is thinking it's very strange that, you know, we've been fighting. In the previous chapters, they had all been fighting together. And then David's home. It's also very strange that in the heat of the battle, you call for one guy, not a battalion, Not a rest for a bunch of people, you call for one. And then it's very strange that now you want me to kill him. I don't think we can say that Joab doesn't know what's going on. And I think not only does Joab know what's going on, Joab actually does David's (laughs) bidding better than David asked for. Remember in the passage, David says, like, take him out into the fighting where it's fiercest and then pull away. And Joab is smart enough to know, like, well, first of all, that's stupid military strategy. Second of all, that's dumb for morale. Third of all, I'll get blamed for this, right? If I'm the commander, I'm like, okay, guys, we're going to go fight. And all of us go, and it's like, I'm three, guys, and we all back away. Someone's going to know something's up. So Joab is smart enough to be like, okay, well, we're going to go where we know they have their best fighters, we're going to go near the city gates because back then a lot of uh, uh, countries really operated as city states. And, and breaching the gate was the thing you had to do. So you had to protect the gate. And there was different ways to protect the gate. In fact, one of the stories that Joab tells is uh, it was a son of uh, Gideon, I think. I think in the past called it Jerum Bashath. But it's really Gideon's son who got killed because a woman dropped a millstone on his head. So he, he knows all of this. But Joab is smart enough to know that, you know, I can call this, you know, a mistake because at least it looks like we're trying something. But here's the one thing that Joab's not worried about, that even though this strategy is smarter than David's, Uriah dies, but other people die as well. So now you have David's sin costing not just Uriah his life, but other people who are fighting and loyal to David, they're also dying. And Uriah, though, also is smart enough to recognize that David doesn't like messengers with bad news. It's a couple of times in the David story now, messengers have come. And some of the messengers were like, when David's enemies died, it's like, Saul is dead. You know, and David's like, how did that happen? Well, he was kind of about to die, so I killed him. And David goes, what? You kill God's anointed, I'm going to kill you. Right there's a couple times in the David story that messengers come back with reports from the war, and David kills them. So Joab is trying to say to this probably young man, is just like, listen, when you go close, I need you to explain to David. And he's trying to warn him here. I need you to explain to David that you know we took to battle, we went close to the to the city walls, and even though we know that's not wrong, like that's what we did, and Uriah is dead, right? And I think that the marker that you know that the, 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 the messenger gets this is what does he do? He adds on to the story, doesn't he? All Joab instructed him would say, when you finish giving the king this account, the king's angers may flare up. He may ask you, why did you get so close to the city and fight? Don't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Uh, Don't you know what killed Abimelech, the son of Gideon? Don't you know the woman dropped a stone on his head? Why did you get so close to the wall? He knew that David is also a military savant, and David might question the strategy. So he says, like, if he asks about the strategy, just say, Uriah is dead. That's the code word. And the servant not only picks up on this, you know, it's like a kid, right? You tell a kid one thing, and then you tell him to pass it on to the next person, and you have all this, like, imagination, right? So all he said was, like, tell him that we got close to the city wall, and, and when we got close enough, like, right died, right? So this guy, what does he do? He goes, listen, David, the men overpowered us. They came out against us when we were out in the open, but we were so valiant and brave, we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. That's the only reason we were there, David, because we were valiant and brave, and we drove them back. You know, then they got the archers out, and the archers, you know, they were, they were shooting at your servants from the wall, and some of our people died, David, and Uriah the Hittite is dead. You see, everyone is working really hard to pacify David and to not hold him accountable joab as a commander could have been like no i'm not killing one of my best men for you i'm not sure what's going on but you got to sort that out yourself but he doesn't and he commits his people to dying and this servant is so scared of giving the message to david that he he makes up the whole story like oh we were fighting in the open we drove him back and we were dodging arrows some of us died and but yeah uriah died And I think the most sobering part of this story though is that David, his reaction is consolation for Joab. It's not consolation for Bathsheba. It's not consolation even about Uriah. David's response is basically, don't worry, Joab. This happens in war. This is what happens in war, but you know what? I want you to now go and win the battle, right? That's his response. The reason this is so damning to David is you remember when David's enemies died? Remember when Saul died? Remember what David did? He ran out into the open. He was weeping and crying and singing songs to his enemies who were trying to kill him. And now because of his sin, because his heart is so hardened, because he's so far away from God, when one of his most loyal servants dies for him at his bedding, he doesn't even weep. Saul worked for years to kill him, and when Saul died, David cried. Because David knew that Saul was still God's anointed and God's chosen one, and he wept for Saul. But he doesn't cry a tear for Uriah, who was only crime was being faithful to David. And David says, don't worry, Joab. just Ease your conscience, my brother. This is just what happens in war. People die now go win the battle and then to Bathsheba the end of our story we hear that after the time of mourning David took Bathsheba into his house and she became his wife there's nothing that says after she was done grieving all we have is the technical after the time of mourning which is seven days I've never lost a spouse tragically, but I think it's not too liberal of my interpretation to say seven days is not enough to get over the grief of your spouse. I think it's not too liberal of an interpretation to say that David's worry here is time and time is of the essence. Because if she's pregnant, who knows how many months have gone by now and we got to cover this thing up. So seven days she gives her, he gives her to grieve her husband, who he's tragically led to his killing. And seven days he brings her into his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. And then, after this entire sordid affair, after this entire episode, we finally get an appearance from God. And the author just has one line, and it's the most damning thing probably in the entire passage. And he says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. There's a, there's a lot of um, a beautiful writing here in the Hebrew. So, for example, when David says to Joab, don't worry, you know, um, that's just what happens in war. David is basically in the Hebrew saying, it's like, don't worry, that's good for me. That's good in my eyes. So the author then is contrasting sin and darkness, God and David here. He's saying what was good in David's eyes was that Uriah was dead and he had cleaned the slate. But this was not good in God's eyes because his son, his servant, his own chosen one is so far away from him that he's now coveted his neighbor's wife slept with his neighbor's wife killed his neighbor lived in hypocrisy and took his seat of power to oppress someone who was less powerful than him I don't know how many commandments that is but that's a lot that David the son of God just broke so that it could be good in his eyes but the things that David did displeased the Lord You can feel David's sigh of relief as Bathsheba comes into the house. The lustful hypocrite David, who was hypocritical even unto the death of Uriah, unto the death of his men. You can see the relief on him when he's just like, Well, if Bathsheba is in my house, I will even look good. I'm such a faithful king that when one of my loyal servants dies, I'm not going to let his wife be a widow and poor. I'm going to take her into my house because I'm so gracious. I'm going to take her into my house because I'm so good, because I care for my men. I care for the shalom of my people. But God sees it, and our God is not mocked, and our God is not pleased. And before we kind of finish on what we're supposed to take away from all of this, you know, my grandmom also used to correct us. Shocking, I know that I would need correction. But one of the ways she corrected us, and I never got this, and I was just like, this seems like a double negative. This isn't working for me, right? One of the things she would always say is, like, what we're not going to do, and what that means is what you're not going to do is these words that are coming out of my mouth, you know? So if you did something wrong and you try to cry to make yourself feel better, she's like, what we're not going to do is cry about it. You know, that's what we're not going to do. And I think that's a good way, that's a good lens to read this story, because I want to tell you, before I can tell you what we are to do with this story, I think, I want to tell us what we're not going to do. The first thing we're not going to do this morning in understanding this story is we're not going to sit here and think that we're better than David. That's the first thing we're not going to do, because here's the thing, our sins get to hide. David is in the book for generations that some boy from Liberia can come to Harrisburg a couple of thousand years later and talk about it everything is laid out in the book aren't you glad God's merciful that everything you've done is not laid out in some book that some little brat can pick it up 2,000 years 3,000 years later and wax poetic on it aren't you glad that God is merciful to not give your book to the world the first thing we're not gonna do is pretend that we're better than David because here's the thing we sin too And the thing about our sin is that we pretend we're God when we sin, just like when your lust takes over, like the passage in James said and like Bonhoeffer pointed out, when your lust takes over, your desire becomes God and God is forgotten. So how many times do we fall short because we make ourselves God? How many times do we fall short because we use our power, our privilege, our position to take advantage of someone else? How many times do we fall short by pretending that we're in control of our lives, by controlling we're the by by, by thinking that we're the one who who dictates everything? How many times do we sin by asserting control over others for our benefit, for our satisfaction? What David is a reminder to us is not just, oh, my gosh, she's bad, but, oh, my goodness, we're capable of this too. What we're not going to do is leave here feeling better about ourselves by saying, you know what? At least I ain't sleep with nobody and had their husband killed. And Jesus helps us do that. Jesus helps us do that, doesn't he? Because in Matthew 5, remember what our Jesus said? I'll read to you in case you forgot what Jesus said. It actually has to do with adultery and murder. See if we still feel good about ourselves after this one. Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart or in her heart. So Jesus then says, yeah, adultery is bad, but I consider it just as bad when you look at people lustfully. So what we're not going to do and look at David's adultery and say, well, David is so bad because Jesus, our Jesus says, if you've ever lusted after anyone in your life, you're guilty of adultery yourself. What we're not going to do is think we're better than David. And here's the other one, though. Jesus also said in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. That sounds like a good plan. Don't murder nobody. And anyone who murders will be subject to the judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister in Christ will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister in Christ, Raka, and holds them in contempt, they're answerable to the fire. The answer will to the court, anyone who says you fool will be in danger to the fire. So according to our Jesus, if we lust after someone, we're guilty of adultery. And if we've ever hated anyone or looked down upon anyone, we're capable. No, not even just capable. We are guilty of murder. So when you look at what David did, yes, I'm not saying it's equivalent, but I'm saying Jesus might consider it equivalent. And that's something that we're thinking about and muse on for a little bit. You know, you may not have lusted, you may not have uh, slept with someone who's not your spouse. But Jesus says, you know, if you thought about it, I consider that adultery. And you may not have killed anyone, but Jesus says, if you hold someone in contempt, if you hate your brother or sister in Christ, if you look down upon someone, if you use your power and your privilege and your position to take advantage of someone else, I consider you like a murderer. This is why we need to come back to this David story because according to our own lives and if we're honest with our own selves, not only are we capable of what David did, but we too fall short. The grace of God, yes, he forgives us from our sins, but it's also that God is always forgiving us of our sins. The grace of God means that, yes, when Jesus died, it was once and for all, but because we're not perfect and we fall short, our God still redeems, amen? What we're not going to do is think we're better than David. The other thing we're not going to do is blame Bathsheba. You know, I grew up as a kid reading this story, and I think we did all these mental gymnastics to try to figure out, you know, how can David, a man after God, do this thing? As well, it was Bathsheba's fault, she was bathing. We forget that in that culture there's no indoor plumbing. We forget in that culture that, you know, she women literally would go up at night and they would have things like around them like to shield them and that's when they would take baths. We forget that it's David who, again, if he just walked and glanced, he'd be like, oh, I messed up. But he looked and he gawked and he saw that she was beautiful. And that's not even the worst thing that he did in this story. What we're not going to do is blame Bathsheba because David, the most powerful person in the kingdom, David, who at that point is the full representation of who God is to the Israelite, when he summons for her and forces himself upon her, we're not going to sit here and blame her and say, it's Bathsheba's fault because it's not her fault. It's all on David, and if you're not sure it's all on David, read through that story again and see who's the one who's kicking the action in every single verse. See who's sending for people back and forth. See who's making the dictations of what's going to happen. David is in control. This is not Bathsheba's fault. There's so many people who, who, are, who have been abused, and our natural tendency is to say, what did they do wrong? And I think we, as the church, have to do this better job and not saying when a kid is abused or a person is taken advantage of, we have to do a better job of not saying, what did you do wrong? What did you do wrong? What were you wearing? What were you thinking? We need to start calling the people who take advantage of people. We need to start saying it's their fault. It's not Bathsheba's fault in this story. David is the one who does wrong. And we need, as the church, need to be a home and a hospital. And the best way you can be a home and a hospital is not looking a victim in the eye and saying, why did you mess up? Why did you put yourself in that situation? It's not their fault. And if you're hearing this morning and you've been told it's your fault before, I want to apologize and say God is good. But it's not your fault. The other thing we're not going to do this morning is keep walking the wrong way. How many times in this story did David have a chance to turn around? When he woke up, well, first of all, he should have been at the battle lines. Because he's 50 years old, he has all these fighting men. Here's the other irony of the story. David probably wouldn't even have to pick up a sword. He could have been in a battle. He could have been in his tent sleeping all day getting the reports but he doesn't do that. David stays at home. He's walking on the porch. He could have glanced by accident, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt, and turned around and went in and said, God, I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't have been looking, but I looked. Could have done that. Doesn't do that. He could have stopped when the servant said, um, David, that, that's Uriah's wife. Uh, that is Eliam's daughter. That's Ahithophel's granddaughter. He could have stopped then and there and be like, oh, well, I was messed up to think these things, but these are my closest friends and allies. I'm not going to do it that way. He could have stopped there too. He could have stopped there after even they summoned her and she came to him and he'd be like, you know what, I was going to do this evil thing, but I'm not going to do it now because I'm convicted. He could have stopped there too. He could have also stopped after the event and say, God, I'm sorry, I'm falling, please forgive me. But he's like, you know what, I'm going to cover it up. He could have stopped after the first try to send Uriah home, after the second try to send Uriah home. He could have done it by not sending that letter to Uriah's death. He could have done it after Uriah died, and he could have wept and realized, oh, my gosh, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against Uriah. I've sinned against Bathsheba. At any given point in the story, David could have stopped and asked for God's forgiveness. The idea of shuv in the Hebrew is this idea of return, is this idea of redemption, is this idea of stop going the wrong direction and turning back on the right step. When we ask God for forgiveness, it's not just good that God wants us to be washed as white as snow, which is tricky for some of us, but we're working on it. It's not just that God wants to make us clean, it's that God wants to redeem us. You know what the Shuv idea is? We're in the middle of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, generally speaking. I'm not great with directions, but I'm going to go with it, right? The idea of Shuv is if we decided this morning we want to drive to Philadelphia and we get on the wrong road on a turnpike. And we're going the wrong way on the turnpike. Mile after mile, we see welcome to Pittsburgh. The idea of Shuv doesn't say, you know what? I'm sorry I'm on the way to Pittsburgh, but I'm going to keep driving this direction. The idea of Shuv is to what? Get off the exit, turn the car around, and head towards Philadelphia. So when you're this morning, if you can look at your life and you look at your life and say, I've been taking these steps in the wrong direction, it's not enough for you to say, God, forgive me of my sins. You got to turn the car around. Because I don't want you in Ohio. I want you in Harrisburg. I don't want you to keep going and go to Michigan and and Colorado and, and end up in California and say, well, God keeps forgiving me. The idea of shoe is a forcible turn in the right direction. So if your life is characterized this morning by steps in the wrong direction, you need to turn around. You need to turn around because it's not enough to say, God, forgive me. Shuva's is turning around. Stop taking steps in the wrong direction. We're not going to blame David. We're not going to, whoa, hold on. We are going to blame David. We're not going to say we're better than David. We're not going to blame Bathsheba, but we're also not going to ask for forgiveness and keep walking in our lostness. We're not going to ask for forgiveness and keep taking steps in the wrong direction. We're not going to ask for forgiveness and mock our God by keep doing the thing that we know we shouldn't be doing. And then this last thing, though, that we're not going to do, and this is where the hope comes in, right? We're not going to let sin have the last word. Aren't you glad this morning that God thinks you're more than your worst sin? Aren't you glad this morning that at no point in your life did God not love you? This could have been the end of the story, but I actually love 2 Samuel 12. I love the redemption that i I love that when David finally realizes and he finally cries out to God in Psalm 51, I love that he not only has this return, but he's a broken man because he knows, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against Bathsheba. I've caused people their death. David comes back home again, and it's a reminder to us that our sin is never greater than our God. Our lostness is never greater than the God who finds us. The darkness that even lives inside of us will never be greater than the light that shines down upon us. The brokenness that we cause or the brokenness we hold on to will never be greater than the God who is the God who heals. So what are we to do for all this? The first one, I think, is we need to do just that. Praise God for his mercy. 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 I don't think you're hearing me. Praise God for his mercy. Praise God for his mercy that this morning he so loves us we do not get what we deserve. He so loves us that his covenant love always does what's best for us. He so loves us that his love is willing to cover and forgive all of our sins. Praise God for his mercy. The second thing that we are going to do this morning is we're going to ask God for forgiveness because John, Jesus' best friend, said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. God is merciful. Confess and be forgiven. Come home again. What we are going to do is ask God and say, thank you for your mercy, but also ask God for his forgiveness, because when we're forgiven and we confess before God, then we can start the healing process. And what we are going to do this morning is if we can look at our lives, if we can look at our lives and say, man, this is all these steps in the wrong direction, what we are going to do this morning is we're going to do a shuv, we're going to turn, we're going to stop going to Pittsburgh, because who wants to go to Pittsburgh besides food? It's true. And we're going to go back to Philadelphia, right? If you're going on these steps to the road, sorry, Steve, I know it hurt your soul. It's okay. It's okay. We're going to stop taking these steps towards the wrong direction. And we're going to get back on the right road, not only asking God to forgive us, but taking steps in the right direction. Because baby steps closer to God is called progress. Because you can take 20 steps in the wrong direction, but if you take five steps towards God, you've moved forward. And you can stop at those five steps and say, oh, my goodness, I'm not 20 steps away. I'm only 15. Then you can take five more steps and say, praise God, I'm only 10. Then you can blink and be like, I don't know how, but God brought me 20 steps, and now I'm 10 steps ahead of where I used to be. Stop going the wrong direction and start walking in the right path. And the best way I think to work in this right path is to run from temptation. Run from temptation. David thought he was all powerful and he failed. David thought he was so tight with God that he could do whatever he wants or maybe that he could sustain it and he failed. If David was a man after God's own heart and he couldn't withhold temptation and was led by his lust, how much more do we need to help? Run from temptation. And then this last one is simply this. We have to let God define us and let God have the final word. So many of us are trapped in our sins. So many of us are controlled by our sins because we believe that our sin is a place of accusation and condemnation. I'm so bad. I'm not good enough. I'm so far away from God. But here's the glory of Jesus Christ. Your sin is not the place of accusation and condemnation. Because of Jesus Christ, your sin can be the place of your salvation. If you sit in your sins and you worry about, I'm so far away from God, I'm so broken, I'm not good enough, Satan will own you. But if you want to be set free this morning, if you want to be free this morning, call on the name of Jesus Christ. And your sin can be the path to your healing because if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins. And if you turn around and get on the right path, he's faithful and just to bless you and keep you and even use you to help someone else who's struggling. With that same thing. That's the God we serve. That's the God we serve. Sin does not get to have the final word. And our sins and us falling short is not what defines us. It's our God who's good, who defines us. It's our God who's gracious, who defines us. It's our God who's amazing who defines us. Who defines us. I'd like to call up Pastor Estee and the worship team. We're gonna end by singing Amazing Grace. I think the reason this song is so good for us this morning is because all of us in this room, all of us in this room can find ourselves in this story this morning. And Jesus helps us frame it, right? If we've ever held someone in contempt, if we've ever looked down upon a brother or sister, if we've ever used our own power and privilege and position to take advantage of someone else, we are in need of forgiveness, If we ever lusted after another person or or, or coveted something else, we need forgiveness. But praise God for his amazing grace. Praise God that you're more than the worst thing you've done. Praise God that he's always faithful, good, and true. I'd like to also invite the intercessors up for prayer and, and any staff in the room, please come up as well. We'd love to pray for you for anything. But as we sing this song this morning, may you be reminded that our God loves you and our God's with you and that no trial or temptation can conquer you because in Christ Jesus, you're more than conquerors. Amen.